Our scripture is from Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, and verses 26 through 28. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created men in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. So last week, um, the uh, team of guys on our staff got to go to a pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was really fun. Got to hang out together and uh, get to know each other a little better. One of the curveballs that I didn't totally realize is that all five of us dudes, and some of us are quite big, were staying in one small Airbnb that had two bedrooms, two beds, and one bathroom, okay? If you want to know who's the highest maintenance guy on staff, come ask me afterwards. I can tell you. Here's the good news. No one killed each other in the small space. The only casualty was one couch that we broke. So if you want to know where your tithe money's going, it's going to that couch in Louisville. Just kidding. I think Airbnb's insurance pays for that, I hope. We'll see. Anyway, one of the things, when you go into a new city, if I don't know when the last time you've been to a new place was. I haven't been to Louisville before. And so it was brand new. And we were in this place, hadn't Uh, It was pretty close to the convention center. But um, in our maybe arrogance or something, when we were uh, getting close to where our actual place was, we didn't actually pull up uh, GPS to try to find our way back because we're like, I think we can just find it, right? Andrew was driving, so it was probably more his fault than anyone else. But... We, we thought, we're like, okay, we're driving, we get a couple streets, looking for street signs, anything that we remember, no, and I, th- I think this looks right, and so we just turn, start driving, and then realize, no, we actually don't know where we're going, and so then we have to humbly pull up our maps uh, uh, app on our phone and figure out, oh, we're not there, and so the next time we come back, did the same thing, we're like, I think we can actually find it this time, right? We drove again, took a couple turns, and we're like, uh, we're not actually there. We missed it again. I think a third time we tried and we realized, okay, the maps in our head are like not accurate with what reality is. And so every time we had to pull up the GPS, try to align with what the actual layout of the, the city was, and then we got our way back. But hey, we made it through and it was all good. Now, for you... In a city that you know, like Omaha, unless you're brand new to the city, I would guess that all of you um, that are in this room, as you drive home to go home for lunch or to go home to take a nap or whatever, uh, my guess is that none of you are pulling up an app like GPS to find your way home. Like, you know exactly where your house is. You know exactly which roads to take. You know exactly where to turn. And you have an accurate mental map of where you're supposed to be going, right? I would assume, unless you're brand, brand new. Well, 
Um, there's an, a Christian author, his name is John Mark Comer, and he uses um, kind of that analogy, and he steals a term from psychology called mental maps, and he says that we all have these mental maps for how we navigate our world. And when I say our world, I don't mean the streets that we drive on, but he actually talks about the actual, like, like the way that we navigate life, like the deeper things of life. So in other words, he says, we have mental maps for how we find meaning in life. We have a, a mental map for what we think it looks like uh, to, to be in a healthy relationship. We have a mental map for what it looks like to be an effective parent. We have a, a mental map for what God is like. And then maybe ultimately we have a, a map in our eyes, a mental map for what it looks like to flourish as a human being, to flourish as an individual. Now, uh, Comer points out a problem, and he says, problem is, much like our time in Louisville, if your map in your head of what flourishing looks like for you does not align with reality, you're going to find yourself lost. And if you follow what you have in your head and you think that is going to get you to where you're, going to be to find some sort of flourishing, you're actually going to, more often than not, uh, be floundering instead. And you're going to be disappointed and disillusioned and disenchanted time and time again, because what you're trying to live into just isn't real life. And, and so with this in mind, there is great hope for Christians because, as Andrew was talking about and introducing us to before, um, there is actually a true and defined reality. And our true and defined reality is rooted in the fact that we have a creator who is the beginning of all things and a creator who created things to work in a certain way. And not only that, but he had us in mind when he created and he intentionally moves toward us. He's not distant, but he's near and he created us to live with him and live in his way. And in doing that, we align with true reality. Now, my hope for this morning is to kind of zoom in on one major problem, one false narrative that we have, um, maybe what we see as reality or what we're tempted to see as reality, but it's not actually the, the true story. It's a story that, or a narrative that I think we're swimming in in our culture today, and it's the story of finding flourishing by following our inner desires, now, I'm going to tease out a little bit more what I mean by that coming up and maybe how it applies in the most direct way in our culture uh, as we go on. But first, um, I want to show how our creator has designed the world and designed us to live in a specific way that lines up with reality. It all starts with God, the creator. And since that's the case, we're going to turn together to Genesis 1 to start at the beginning um, and, and journey through this together. So if you have your Bibles... It's not very hard to find. If you don't know the books of your Bible, this is an easy one. It's the first page, okay? So open up to the first verse, Genesis 1-1, um, and we're going to start this idea that reality is rooted in the Creator. So if you look at your very first word, or ve the very first words of the Bible, what do you discover? This is only the first half of the first verse. It says, in the beginning, God. Now, I want to pause there intentionally. Uh, Paul Tripp, another Christian author, um, writes rather poetically about just this phrase, the first four words in the Bible. And I want you to just kind of soak this in. No, you've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm sure you've got a long to-do list. But just get your mind around 
true reality or where reality begins. He says about these four words. He says, before the world was formed, God was. Before the sun, moon, and stars lit up the sky, God was. Before the first flower bloomed, God was. Before the first crash of thunder, before the first gust of wind, before the first fall of snow, God was. Before Adam experienced breath in his lungs, before Adam ever laid eyes on the beauty of his wife Eve, before they walked, talked, laughed, hugged, God was. Before the first anything, God was. Now, we need to be reminded sometimes that all that we see in here at one time, uh, it didn't exist. And before that, before any of this was created, God existed. And you know what? He was happy. He was joy-filled. He was satisfied. He was at peace. He was still loving and beautiful. And he was perfect and satisfied as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's how existence was for eternity past, before any of us came on the scene. Then in love and in grace, he created. The rest of Genesis 1.1 says, as many of you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you proceed through Genesis 1, you see that God create, or you see the creation of sun and moon and stars and animals and birds and seas and and fish and all of these things. And the Genesis account is accentuating how this God, this specific God is over everything. Everything came from him. He is the source of everything. And at the end of this list of things he creates in verse 26, it talks about us. It talks about humans, you and I. And it not only tells us about humans, but it tells us for the purpose which we were created. So let's look at verse 26 together. I'll put this on the screens. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we get a picture first of God being self-existent by himself. Then he creates everything. And at the end of all this creation, he creates his masterpiece, the pinnacle of all creation, which was humankind. And, and it's, it, they says, it says that we're created in his image or likeness. There's this unique thing that God puts into humans that's, that is, makes us like him in a way, that makes us point to him in a way. And we have a unique role over all of the earth. We, we help the earth flourish, you see. It says that we have, we're supposed to have dominion over the earth and that we're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, at first reading, when you think of the word dominion or subduing something, it kind of feels like like, like lording power over, kind of a strong thing, when in reality, the word subdue is more of a gentle and intentional development. It's almost like cultivation. So like, if you think of like a gardener who like cultivates something and helps something grow by weeding and, and helping care for something and water it. So review, what does this story or who does this story start with? God. 
Who thought up humans? God. Who gave the unique, intentional purpose to humans? God. Then who would know how humans flourish? God, right? Who holds the keys to true reality? Whose mental map is ultimately correct? It's God's, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I think about this um, and the fact that, that God knows all, it, makes, it reminds me that maybe I don't know everything. And I don't know about you, it's hard for me to admit that the thoughts I have and the convictions I have aren't truly, like, they aren't always right. They're always accurate. I, I don't know if I'm just, like, arrogant, but I'm like, surely my convictions, my gut-level convictions, they have to be right, right? I don't know if, is anyone, no, anyone like me? Well, I think, so then I'm reminded through history how many stupid things I've actually done and how many ways I've gotten it wrong before. Like I was just thinking when I was in sixth grade and uh, I was in Atkinson Junior High and I went to my first ever school dance as a sixth grader, first ever, and there was this girl there named Nicole. And okay, okay. (laughs) Anyway, so first, danced a couple times. And I tell you what, when I got home, my life was changed forever. And I thought, I now know my purpose in life. My destiny is to marry this girl and we're going to be happily ever after. This is obviously what I'm supposed to do with my entire life. Now, I realize now, like, that that was just a stupid idea. Like, That wasn't very smart. Now, Nicole, if you're watching on YouTube from somewhere, you're a great girl, but something better worked out. I mean, for real, like my wife is amazing and great, but we like to think that we grow out of like, you know, obviously a silly example. We like to think we grow out of these things, but if you look back time and time again, there are things that we have a burden for, things that are, we feel like are deep in our hearts and we're like, wow, maybe I wasn't exactly as as right as I thought I was. Our whole lives, we're prone to believing that we are the ultimate source of guidance, that it's from in here, right? And this me-centeredness has led to one false story that I think is just sweeping through minds of, of really all of us. It's prevalent in films and in music, and uh, it's probably more embraced fully in more progressive areas of our nation than maybe here, but it really is the water we swim in. And I think it's only going to become more and more prominent in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I'm going to call this false story or this false uh, narrative moral relativism, okay? Um, Let me throw up a a simple definition for you. Moral relativism says... There is no such thing as absolute right and wrong. Individuals and cultures are free to come to their own conclusions about morality, and those are, by default, correct. Okay? Now, uh, let me warm us up to this idea by uh, just uh, play along with me. Now, say for the sake of this example that we are all parents of teenagers, okay? So you have a teenager, and um, say this teenager comes up to you uh, today and says, Mom, Dad, I've got this passion in my heart. Um, I feel compelled to go um, serve meals at a homeless shelter every Saturday uh, this summer. 
you're like, that's great, right? Like, wouldn't we all agree like, wow, how did I raise such a good kid? This is, this is like great. Like that, that's a good thing, right? Okay, pretend it's the next day. You're riding high because you're a great parent. Your kid comes back to you. It says, you know what? Uh, Mom, dad, I'm feeling adventurous today. Um, I actually want to try out heroin this afternoon. How do you respond? You say, that's a horrible idea. That is wrong. It's bad for you, right? Now, say the next day comes along. I'm going to dive in here, uh, take it to the next level. Um, Say your child comes to you, and it's a boy. And this boy comes up to you and says, "Um, hey, I have a boyfriend, and I want to sleep with my boyfriend. What do you say to that? And notice how in the first example, the first two examples, there's a, a consensus of what morality is. There's a consensus of what good and bad is. The first is good. The second is bad. You, you may have a, the majority of people that think something about the third example, but if you ask 100 parents in Omaha, there's a sense in which you'd get answers all over the board. Like, is that good or is that bad? And the question is, is why are our views so different? It's because our mental maps of what would create human flourishing are wildly different. That's the idea. And so you have to ask, okay, so why are our views so different? Well, Christian historian Carl Truman uh, wrote a book, A Strange New World. And through this, he tracks some influential philosophers over the last 400 years. I am not a philosopher. I'm a novice, novice level. And so if you are, just bear with me. I just read people who write about philosophers. I don't actually read the philosophers. But anyway... In his book, A Strange New World, um, he tracks philosophers over the last 400 years, names like Descartes and Rousseau and Nietzsche and other names you might remember if you ever took a college philosophy class or whatever. And he shows the trajectory of how thinkers slowly began taking God out of the equation when it comes to human meaning or human flourishing. And after they took God out of the equation, they started placing self at the center. The individual became the king, essentially the creator. And not only this, but their philosophy evolved into the most important thing about yourself. The truest thing about yourself, the thing that identifies you at your core, is your inner desires and feelings. That's who you are. And any inner desire or feeling that is not pursued is a betrayal against your identity. Church family, this is the water we swim in. And so we have to to know and be aware, even when we're trying to discern our way through circumstances, make decisions in life. We have been brought up and trained up swimming in this water to where um, our ultimate guide we're prone to think is our inner desire, what we want to do, what we believe is right. And we have to know that that is by default as an American, the ultimate barometer of how we judge right and wrong. And where we've seen this in the very clearest way in our culture um, is in the place of sex and gender. Our you do you or follow your heart mindset, uh, this 
this thing that emerged out of philosophy has collided with the idea of sex becoming casual in our culture. Now, Truman, um, in his book, goes on to describe how this essentially, like those two things have collided together to create this massive snowball that's rolling down a hill that has gotten us to where we are today. And it kind of kickstarted during the sexual revolution during the 60s. Now, Uh, Truman describes this um, development of sex becoming casual. It started with a a spirit of people wanting to be free and wanting to express themselves. But then some circumstances happened. Things like the pill came on the market and it was cheap. And so then it took procreation out of the risk or as a way as a risk if you had sex. And then there were things like Playboy magazine and Cosmopolitan that came on the market and it presented promiscuity as being kind of cool. And then pornography became more and more normalized. And then you fast forward a couple decades and then the, the, the invention of the internet and the widespread nature of all of these things just be, made everything easily accessible. All the while you have things like soap operas and sitcoms and, and films presenting sex as kind of a, a fun pastime of sorts. And these are just some of the developments that all added to this idea of sex being casual. And not only has it become casual, sex has become king in our culture, right? It's seen as the pinnacle of how we experience pleasure and happiness. Now, mix that with this, my inner desires are ultimate truth, and you get a world in which sexual desire is the most true thing about you. Therefore, pursuing sexual desires and building my identity on that must become my ultimate pursuit. That is the mental map of flourishing in America, right? But this is not a new thing. We're not the first culture. We're not the first um, nation uh, to struggle with this. You can see it clear back in the Bible. 2,000 years ago. If you look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, you can turn there. I'll also put this on the screens if, if you want to follow along. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul speaks exactly to this. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now in this passage, Paul is correcting the Corinthian church. This church is young. They're fairly immature in their faith and they're in a culture where pleasure and sex is celebrated as ultimate. Now, for a second, try to imagine being in a culture where sex is being celebrated as kind of the ultimate thing. Can you get your heads there? It's a joke, right? Um, but in the Corinthian church, they were having these, I mean, unhindered sexual escapades that were happening. They were also um, visiting temple prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite. There were also concubines that some of the men's ha- men had in the church. All of this stuff was happening. Now, if you look at the passage closely, the reason I was doing this as I was reading is Paul isn't claiming that all of these phrases are truth. The quotations are actually sayings of the day in Corinth that he's quoting back to them. He's saying, you say 
all things are lawful for me. And that was a phrase that implied that whatever someone wanted to do, i.e. follow their heart, it could be done. Then he says the phrase in quotes, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And essentially what he is saying is whatever your body desires, feed it. Whatever your body wants, go for it. Whatever urge you have, like it's your right, go after it. Like it's, it's okay, just do it. That's the truest part of you, your inner desires, go for it. That sounds kind of familiar, right? And Paul refutes this by saying, sex is not morally relative. Like this kind of, like, there is actually guidelines and boundaries that come with it. You don't follow what your body tells you. Why? Well, he says in verse 15, I don't think I have this up on the screens, but he says, if you have your Bible in front of you, your bodies are members with Christ. Therefore, whatever you do with your body, whoever you have sex with your body, you're essentially doing that to Jesus who is in you. That's the argument he makes. Pretty stark, right? Then in verse 19, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, your body is a cleansed place. It's a clean place. It's a, it's a claimed place, a place where God dwells and owns. Therefore, your desires don't lead you in this area. God's created purpose leads you. God's claim of possession over your life, that's what leads you. That's what you follow. God's created purpose as it's highlighted in the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, is sex being embraced and celebrated in the safe and secure covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what God's created purpose for this is. Now, there is a a thought uh, that I've heard several times before that Christians are kind of old school in their views of sex. And in that, um, they're kind of repressive and they're keeping people from experiencing true, uh, the, the true expression of it. They're keep, keeping people from, from experiencing the, the true joy of it by the hindrance or the, the boundaries that they place on it. And I just want to take a second and flip that on its head. Because I believe that the world views sex as a bodily thing. It's the thing that's tied to your body. And what you do in sex is you follow whatever your desires or your urges are. And you're essentially obliged to follow those things. And then you, um, you, you engage in an act that is, that is physically pleasing. That's the idea. That's the vision. However, think about the Christian view of sex. It is indeed a pleasure-filled act, but it's for the purpose of a deeper relational connection. It's the purpose of intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's a a full person, whole person thing, not just bodily. It's mental. It's bodily. It's emotional. It's for the health of of two people. And that brings up another thing. It's not just the Christian view of sex. It's not just about yourself, but it's selfless in nature. You're trying to, to create an intimate experience for someone else who can create the, have this whole body experience as well. And I just want to say, I think the Christian view of sex is better. I think it's better than the world's. So 
If you haven't followed along, here's the case I'm making. Doing what's right for you or following your heart, whether it's in the area of sex or gender or any sort of decision or whatever it might be that's coming up in your life right now, um, it's a trap. And it's been enslaving us from the day that we were born. Even the Apostle Paul speaks into this in chapter 2 when he tells us about our state before Christ. He tells us what we were like. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, this is the beginning of a glorious like painting of the gospel, but it starts with the bad news first. And he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Starting in Genesis 1, we see that we are created good. We see that we're created very good and that we were blessed by God in that. But yet in our selfishness, in our hearts, in rebellion, in sin, our, our hearts' desires turned inward on ourselves and we ran from God. We, we ran from our created purpose. We said, no, thank you to God. And we ran the other way. And because of that, we have found ourselves lost in the map to the creator's true reality, the creator's true reality of good and, and, and amazing flourishing. Now, here's the good news. Our hearts are deceitful. We've gotten ourselves lost. God created for us, us for a purpose. We denied his, his purposes for us, but yet what does God do? I mean, think about what you did. You would do if you created someone and they just continued to run away. But what does God do? In love, in grace, in mercy, God himself, Jesus, comes and finds us. He just doesn't offer us a, a map to get to where he is. He actually comes and pursues us in our lostness and finds us. Isn't that good news? And not only that, but he comes and he forgives us of our rebellion. He forgives us so that we no longer have to experience the grief and the shame and the guilt that we've experienced for all of the things that we've done. He offers healings for the wounds that we have uh, had committed against us. He offers a whole life salvation. He offers good news to us and he offers to to recreate and repurpose us, to give us a new heart so that we can walk faithfully with him. We've been created. We messed it up. Jesus recreates us again. It describes the gospel in Ephesians 2. And then at the end of this beauty of being saved by grace through faith, in Ephesians 2.10, it says, it kind of uses creation language. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So is true flourishing found in following our hearts? Absolutely not. True flourishing is found in the creator himself coming to pursue us, to bring us back, to reconnect us with our true father. 
to reconnect us and offer us abundant life that nothing in this world can do. Recreating us for a new purpose, giving us a new heart. This is God's world that we live in. It's the creator's world. It's his map and flourishing for us will come. And when I say flourishing, I don't mean happy, go lucky, trite, like comfort, ease, like, oh, you're just going to be happy all day. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about forgiveness from sin. I'm talking about freedom and healing from difficult uh, pain and wounds in our life. I'm talking about a deep satisfaction in God. That kind of flourishing will come when we surrender our desires to him and we walk in the good works that he's laid out for us. Now, um, because I know a good number of you, I know that what I, what we've talked about as far as God's design, especially in the area of, of sex and gender, I know that, um, that many of you are probably aligned with what I said. Not all of you, but I would say the majority of you are. Now, here's my challenge to you as you go from here. One thing that you could do is you could storm off to social media and you could start posting about how awful and sinful and horrible people are. And you can start talking about, you could, you know, post about how awful our culture is and how we're all going to hell. Like you could do that. Or you could do that if you're not a social media person, you could do that with your friends today and tomorrow. You could be the voice of condemnation. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Would you be the loving presence of Christ moving toward people who have a different conviction than you? Would you be the loving presence of Christ who move toward people that maybe have a different lifestyle than you and begin to show them the compelling picture of Christ who is the ultimate one's who is the ultimate one who frees us. Show them Christ, the one, the only one who can forgive for sins and forgive for the things that we feel guilt and shame over. Show them Christ, the only one who can give this abundant life that we so seek after. And show them that the creator has a satisfying way, a more satisfying way. And it comes with surrendering, surrendering our entire lives to him. Isn't this how we all got here anyway? That we had to be saved by grace. Somebody had to show us the glories of Christ, the beauty of a creator, to surrender our hearts to him. Could we be a people that step into those good works and do the same for other? Man, when you think about God being a creator and designing the world a certain way, doesn't it only make sense that we would give our whole lives to him? that we would surrender our hearts to him, that we would worship him fully, give ourselves to him fully. Doesn't that just make sense? Well, to close, um, I want to, again, read Ephesians 2.10. And I want to read this over you and just embrace the Paul's words here as he's writing about who we are in Christ. Listen to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we come before you today um, thankful that you uh, were a generous and gracious creator. Um, you would have never had to create 
you would have never had to include us. You would have never had to, to move toward us. You never would have had to be near to us, but you chose to do that anyway. And in our rebellion, you could have chose to abandon us, but you chose to chase after us. We're so grateful for that. It literally has changed our lives. It's changed our hearts. God, could we be a people who take um, the beauty of the good news of Christ, the beauty of having a creator who defines true reality in our kind of anxious and stressed out and and depressed world of uncertainty? Um, could we be a people that bring the message, the concrete message of a creator um, who is firm, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, and who loves us more than we could ever imagine. God, I pray that you would give, also give our church family great wisdom and discernment as we navigate some of the complexities of the conversations around cultural things, especially things like sex and gender. Could you help us um, to show the love of Christ in these conversations and give us a vision for what your truth says that we could um, walk in that and be your witnesses and ambassadors in all of our conversations. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Here below, praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son.